Welcome to this Ubula Audio presentation of The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. Volume 9 The Street of the First Chill Chapter 3 It was four in the morning when he came out of the prison of the condemned with the secretary of the American legation. A knot of people had gathered around the American minister's carriage which stood in front of the prison the horses stamping and pawing in the icy street, the coachman huddled on the box wrapped in furs. Southwark helped the secretary into the carriage and shook hands with Trent, thanking him for coming. How that scoundrel stared at you! Your evidence was worse than a kick, but it saved his skin for the moment at least and prevented complications. The secretary sighed. We've done our part. Now let them prove him a spy and we wash our hands of him. Jump in, Captain. Come along, Trent. I have a word to say to Captain Southwark. I won't detain him, said Trent hastily, and dropping his voice. Southwark, help me now. You know the story from the Blackguard. You know the, the child is at his rooms. Get it and take it to my own apartment. And if he is shot, I will provide a home for it. I understand said the captain gravely. Will you do this at once? At once, he replied. Their hands met in a warm clasp, and then Captain Southwark climbed into the carriage, motioning Trent to follow, but he shook his head, saying goodbye, and the carriage rolled away. He watched the carriage to the end of the street, then started toward his own quarter, but after a step or two, hesitated, stopped, and finally turned away in the opposite direction. Something, maybe it was the sight of the prisoner he had so recently confronted, nauseated him. He felt the need of solitude and quiet to collect his thoughts. The events of the evening had shaken him terribly, but he would walk it off, forget, bury everything, and then go back to Sylvia. He started on swiftly, and for a time the bitter thoughts seemed to fade. But when he paused at last, breathless under the Arc de Triomphe, the bitterness and wretchedness of the whole thing, yes, of his whole misspent life, came back with a pang. Then the face of the prisoner, stamped with the horrible grimace of fear, grew in the shadows before his eyes. Sick at heart, he wandered up and down the great Arc, striving to occupy his mind, peering up at the sculptured cornices to read the names of the heroes and battles which he knew were engraved there. But always the ashen face of Hartman followed him, grinning with terror. Or was it terror? Perhaps it was triumph. At the thought, he leapt like a man who feels a knife at his throat. But after a savage tromp around the square, he came back again and sat down to battle with his misery. The air was cold, but his cheeks were burning with angry shame. Shame? Why shame? Was it because he had married a girl whom chance had made a mother? Did he love her? Was this miserable bohemian existence then his end and aim in life? He turned his eyes upon the secrets of his heart and read an evil story. The story of the past. And he covered his face for shame, while keeping time to the dull pain throbbing in his head. His heart beat out the story for the future. Shame. Shame and disgrace. 
Roused at last from a lethargy which had begun to numb the bitterness of his thoughts, he raised his head and looked about. A sudden fog had settled in the streets. The arches of the ark were choked with it. He would go home. A great horror of being alone seized him now. But he was not alone. The fog was peopled with phantoms. All around him in the mist, they moved, drifting through the arches in lengthening lines, and vanished, while from the fog others rose up, swept past, and were engulfed. He was not alone, for even at his side they crowded, touched him, swarmed before him, beside him, behind him, pressed him back, seized and bore him with them through the mist. Down a dim avenue, through lanes and alleys white with fog, they moved. And if they spoke, their voices were dull as the vapor which shrouded them. At last in front of him towered a bank of masonry and earth cut by a massive iron-barred gate. Slowly and more slowly they glided, shoulder to shoulder and thigh to thigh. Then all movement ceased. A sudden breeze stirred the fog. It wavered and eddied. Objects became more distinct. A pallor crept above the horizon, touching the edges of the watery clouds, and drew dull sparks from a thousand bayonets. Bayonets. They were everywhere, cleaving the fog or flowing beneath it in rivers of steel. High in the wall of masonry and earth, a great gun loomed, and around it, figures moved in silhouettes. Below, a broad torrent of bayonets swept through the iron-barred gateway out into the shadowy plain. It became lighter. Faces grew more distinct among the marching masses, and he recognized one. You, Philippe! The figure turned his head. Trent cried, Is there room for me? But the other only waved his arm in a vague adieu and was gone with the rest. Presently the cavalry began to pass, squadron on squadron, crowding out into the darkness. Then many cannon, then an ambulance, then again the endless lines of bayonets. Beside him a cuirassier sat on his steaming horse, and in front, among a group of mounted officers, he saw a general with the astrakhan collar of his dolman turned up about his bloodless face. Some women were weeping near him, and one was struggling to force a loaf of black bread into a soldier's haversack. The soldier turned to aid her, but the sack was fastened, and his rifle bothered him. So Trent held it while the woman unbuttoned the sack and forced in the bread, now all wet with her tears. The rifle was not heavy. Trent found it wonderfully manageable. Was the bayonet sharp? He tried it. Then a sudden longing... A fierce, imperative desire took possession of him. Show it, cried a gamine, clinging to the barred gate. Encore toi, mon vieux! Trent looked up, and the rat killer laughed in his face. But when the soldier had taken the rifle again, and thanking him, ran hard to catch his battalion, he plunged into the throng about the gateway. Are you going? he cried to a marine who sat in the gutter bandaging his foot. Yes. Then a girl, a mere child, caught him by the hand and led him into the cafe, which faced the gate. The room was crowded with soldiers, some 
white and silent, sitting on the floor, others groaning on the leather-covered settees. The air was sour and suffocating. Choose, said the girl with a little gesture of pity. They cannot go. In a heap of clothing on the floor, he found a capote and a kepi. She helped him buckle his knapsack, cartridge box, and belt on, and showed him how to load the chaspot rifle, holding it on her knees. When he thanked her, she started to her feet. You're a father. American, he said, moving toward the door, but the child barred his way. I am Breton. My father was up there with the cannon of the marine. He will shoot you if you are a spy. They faced each other for a moment, and then sighing, he bent over and kissed the child. Pray for France, little one, he murmured. And she repeated with a pale smile, For France and for you, bon monsieur. He ran across the street and through the gateway. Once outside, he edged into line and shouldered his way along the road. A corporal passed, looked at him, repassed, and finally called an officer. You belong to the 60th, growled the corporal, looking at the number on his kepi. We have no use for franc tireurs, added the officer, catching sight of his black trousers. I wish to volunteer in the place of a comrade, said Trent, and the officer shrugged his shoulders and passed on. Nobody paid much attention to him. One or two merely glanced at his trousers. The road was deep with slush and mud-plowed and torn by wheels and hoofs. The soldier in front of him wrenched his foot in an icy rut and dragged himself to the edge of the embankment, groaning. The plain on either side of them was gray with melting snow. Here and there, behind dismantled hedgerows, stood wagons bearing white flags with red crosses, Sometimes the driver was a priest in rusty hat and gown, sometimes a crippled mobile. Once they passed a wagon driven by a sister of charity. Silent, empty houses with great rents in their walls, and every window blank, huddled along the road. Further on within the zone of danger, nothing of human habitation remained, except here and there a pile of frozen bricks or a blackened cellar choked with snow. For some time, Trent had been annoyed by the man behind him, who kept treading on his heels. Convinced at last that it was intentional, he turned to remonstrate and found himself face to face with a fellow student from the Beaux Arts. Trent stared. I thought you were in the hospital. The other shook his head, pointing to his bandaged jaw. I see you can't speak. Can I do anything? The wounded man rummaged in his haversack, and produced a crust of black bread. He cannot eat it. His jaw is smashed. He wants you to chew it for him. Trent took the crust, and grinding it with his teeth, morsel by morsel, passed it back to the starving man. It was a chilly, silent march through sodden meadows, wreathed in fog. Along the railroad embankment, across the ditch, another column moved parallel to their own. Trent watched it, a somber mass, now distinct, now vague, now blotted out in a puff of fog. Once for half an hour he lost it, but when again it came into view, he noticed the thin line detach itself from the flank, and bellying in the middle, swing rapidly to the west. At the same moment, a prolonged crackling broke out in the fog in front. Other lines began to slough off from the column, swinging east and west, and the crackling became continuous. 
A battery passed at full gallop, and he drew back with his comrades to keep it way. It went into action a little to the right of his battalion, and as the shot from the first rifle piece boomed through the mist, the cannon from the fortifications opened with a mighty roar. An officer galloped by, shouting something which Trent did not catch, but he saw the ranks in front suddenly part company with his own and disappear into the twilight. More officers rode up and stood beside him, peering into the fog. Away in front, the crackling had become one prolonged crash. It was dreary waiting. Trent chewed some bread for the man behind him, who tried to swallow it, and after a while shook his head, motioning Trent to eat the rest himself. A corporal offered him a little brandy, and he drank it, but when he turned around to return the flask, the corporal was lying on the ground. Alarmed, he looked at the soldier next to him, who shrugged his shoulders and opened his mouth to speak. But something struck him, and he rolled over and over into the ditch below. At that moment, the horse of one of the officers gave a bound and backed into the battalion, lashing out with his heels. One man was ridden down, another kicked in the chest and hurled through the ranks. The officer sank his spurs into the horse and forced him to the front again, where he stood trembling. The cannonade seemed to draw near. A staff officer, riding slowly up and down the battalion, suddenly collapsed in his saddle and clung to his horse's mane. One of his boots dangled crimson and dripping from the stirrup. Then out of the mist in front, men came running. The roads, the fields, the ditches were full of them, and many of them fell. For an instant he imagined he saw horsemen riding about like ghosts in the vapors beyond, and a man behind him cursed horribly, declaring he too had seen them, and that they were Ulans. But the battalion stood inactive, and the mist fell again over the meadows. The colonel sat heavily upon his horse, his bullet-shaped head buried in the astrakhan collar of his dolman, his fat legs sticking straight out in the stirrups. The buglers clustered about him with bugles poised, and behind him a staff officer in a pale blue jacket smoked a cigarette and chatted with a captain of the hussars. From the road in front came the sound of furious galloping, and an orderly reined up beside the colonel, who motioned him to the rear without turning his head. Then on the left a confused murmur arose which ended in a shout. A hussar passed like the wind, followed by another and another, and then squadron after squadron whirled by them into the sheeted mists. At that instant the colonel reared in his saddle. The bugles clanged, and the whole battalion scrambled down the embankment, over the ditch, and started across the soggy meadow. Almost at once Trent lost his cap. Something snatched it from his head. He thought perhaps it was a tree branch. A good many of his comrades rolled over in the slush and ice, and he imagined that they had slipped. One pitched right across his path, and he stopped to help him up, but the man screamed when he touched him, and an officer shouted, Farewell! Farewell! So he ran on again. It was a long jog through the mist, and he was often obliged to shift his rifle. When at last they lay panting behind the railroad embankment, he looked about him. He had felt the need of action, of a desperate physical struggle, of killing and crushing. 
he had been seized with a desire to fling himself among masses and tear right and left. He longed to fire, to use the thin, sharp bayonet in his chest pot. He had not expected this. He wished to become exhausted, to struggle and cut until incapable of lifting his arm. Then he had intended to go home. He heard a man say that half the battalion had gone down in the charge, and he saw another examining a corpse under the embankment. The body, still warm, was clothed in a strange uniform, but even when he noticed the spiked helmet lying a few inches further away, he didn't realize what had happened. The colonel sat on his horse a few feet to the left, his eyes sparkling under the crimson kepi. Trent heard him reply to an officer, I can hold it, but another charge, and I won't have enough men left to sound a bugle. Were the Prussians here? Trent asked a soldier who sat wiping the blood trickling from his hair. Yes, the hussars cleaned them out. We cut their crossfire. We are supporting a battery on the embankment, said another. Then the battalion crawled over the embankment and moved along the lines of twisted rails. Trent rolled up his trousers and tucked them into his woolen socks. But they halted again, and some of the men sat down on the dismantled railroad track. Trent looked for his wounded comrade from the Beaux-Arts. He was standing in his place, very pale. The cannonade had become terrific. For a moment, the mist lifted. He caught a glimpse of the 1st Battalion, motionless on the railroad track in front, of regiments on either flank. And then, as the fog settled again, the drums beat and the music of the bugles began away on the extreme left. A restless movement passed among the troops. The colonel threw up his arm, the drums rolled, and the battalion moved off through the fog. They were near the front now, for the battalion was firing as it advanced. Ambulances galloped along the base of the embankment to the rear, and hussars passed and repassed like phantoms. They were in the front at last, for all about them was movement and turmoil, while from the fog close at hand came cries and groans and crashing volleys. Shells fell everywhere, bursting along the embankment, splashing them with frozen slush. Trent was frightened. He began to dread the unknown, which lay there, crackling and flaming in obscurity. The shock of the cannon sickened him. He could even see the fog light up with dull orange as the thunder shook the earth. It was near, he felt certain, for the colonel shouted forward, and the 1st Battalion was hastening into it. He felt its breath. He trembled, but he hurried on. A fearful discharge in front terrified him. Somewhere in the fog, men were cheering, and the colonel's horse, streaming with blood, plunged about in the smoke. Another blast and shock right in his face almost stunned him, and he faltered. All the men to the right were down. His head swam. The fog and smoke stupefied him. He put his hand out for support, and caught something. It was the wheel of a gun carriage, and a man sprang from behind it, aiming a blow at his head with a rammer. He stumbled back, shrieking with a bayonet in his neck, and Trent knew that he had killed. Mechanically, he stooped to pick up his rifle, but the bayonet was still in the man who lay, beating with red hands against the sod. It sickened him, and he leaned on the cannon. 
Men were fighting all around him now, and the air was foul with smoke and sweat. Somebody seized him from behind, and another in front. But others, in turn, seized them, or struck them solid blows. Then, click, click, click. The click, click, click of bayonets infuriated him, and he grasped the rammer and struck out blindly until it was shivered to pieces. A man threw his arm around his neck and bore him to the ground, but he throttled him and raised himself on his knees. He saw a comrade seize the cannon and fall across it with his skull crushed in. He saw the colonel tumble clean out of his saddle into the mud, and then consciousness fled. When he came back to himself, he was lying on the embankment among the twisted rails. On every side huddled men who cried out and cursed and fled away into the fog, and he staggered to his feet and followed them. Once he stopped to help a comrade with a bandaged jaw, who could not speak, but clung to his arm for a time and then fell dead into the freezing mire. And again he aided another who groaned, Fred, c'est moi, Philippe until a sudden volley in the mist relieved him of his charge. An icy wind swept down from the heights, cutting the fog into shreds. For an instant, with an evil leer, the sun peered through the naked woods of Vincennes, sank like a blood clot in the battery smoke, lower and lower into the blood-soaked plain. Chapter 4 when midnight sounded from the belfry of St. Sulpice, the gates of Paris were still choked with fragments of what had once been an army. They entered with the night, a sullen horde, spattered with slime, faint with hunger and exhaustion. There was little disorder at first, and the throng at the gates parted silently as the troops tramped along the freezing streets. Confusion came as the hours passed, swiftly and more swiftly, crowding squadron after squadron, and battery on battery, horses plunging and caissons jolting. The remnants from the front surged through the gates, a chaos of cavalry and artillery struggling for the right of way. Close upon them stumbled the infantry, here a skeleton of a regiment marching with a desperate attempt at order, there a riotous mob of mobiles crushing their way to the streets, then a turmoil of horsemen, cannon, troops without, officers, officers without men. Then again a line of ambulances, the wheels groaning under their heavy loads. Dumb with misery, the crowd looked on. All through the day the ambulances had been arriving, and all day long the ragged throng whimpered and shivered by the barriers. At noon the crowd was increased tenfold filling the squares about the gates and swarming over the inner fortifications. At four o'clock in the afternoon, the German batteries suddenly wreathed themselves in smoke and the shells fell fast on Montparnasse. At 20 minutes after four, two projectiles struck a house in the Rue de Bach and a moment later, the first shell fell on the Latin Quarter. Braith was painting in bed when West came in, very scared. "'I wish you would come down. A house has been knocked into a cocked hat, and I'm afraid that some of the pillagers may take it into their heads to pay us a visit tonight.' 
Braith jumped out of bed and bundled himself into a garment, which had once been an overcoat. Anybody hurt? he inquired, struggling with a sleeve full of dilapidated lining. No. Colette is barricaded in the cellar, and the concierge ran away to the fortifications. There will be a rough gang there if the bombardment keeps up. You might help us. Of course, said Braith. But it was not until they had reached the Rue Serpent and had turned in the passage which led to West Cellar that the latter cried, Have you seen Jack Trent today? No, replied Braith, looking troubled. He was not at ambulance headquarters. He stayed to take care of Sylvia, I suppose. A bomb came crashing through the roof of a house at the end of the alley and burst in the basement, showering the street with slate and plaster. A second struck a chimney and plunged into the garden, followed by an avalanche of bricks. Then another exploded with a deafening report in the next street. They hurried along the passage to the steps which led to the cellar. Here again, Braith stopped. Don't you think I'd better run up and see if Jack and Sylvia are well entrenched? I can get back here before dark. No, go in and find Colette. I'll go. No, no, let me go. There's no danger. I know it, replied West calmly, and, dragging Braith into the alley, pointed to the cellar steps. The iron door was barred. Colette! Colette! he called. The door swung inward and the girl sprang up the stairs to meet them. At that instant... Braith, glancing behind him, gave a startled cry, and pushing the two before him into the cellar, jumped down after them and slammed the iron door. A few seconds later, a heavy jar from the outside shook the hinges. "'They are here,' muttered Westbury, pale. "'That door,' observed Colette calmly, "'will hold forever.' Braith examined the low iron structure, now trembling with the blows raining on it, West glanced anxiously at Colette, who displayed no agitation, and this comforted him. "'I don't believe they will spend much time here,' said Braith. "'They only rummage in cellars for spirits, I imagine. "'Unless they hear that valuables are buried there.' "'But surely there's nothing buried here,' exclaimed Braith uneasily. "'Unfortunately there is,' growled West. "'That miserly landlord of mine, he... A crash from the outside, followed by a yell, cut him short. Then blow after blow shook the doors, until there came a sharp snap, a clinking of metal, and a triangular bit of iron fell inwards, leaving a hole through which struggled a ray of light. Instantly, West knelt, and shoving his revolver through the aperture, fired every cartridge. For a moment, the alley resounded with the racket of the revolver. Then, absolute silence followed. Presently, a single questioning blow fell upon the door, and a moment later, another, and another, and then a sudden crack zigzagged across the iron plate. Here, said West, seizing Colette by the wrist. You follow me, Braith. And he ran swiftly toward a circular spot of light at the further end of the cellar. The spot of light came from a barred manhole above. West motioned Braith to mount his shoulders. Push it over. You must. With little effort, Braith lifted the barred cover, scrambled out onto his stomach, and easily raised Colette from West's shoulders. Quick, old chap, cried the latter. Braith twisted his legs around a fence chain and leaned down again. The cellar was flooded with a yellow light, and the air reeked with the stench of petroleum torches. 
The iron door still held, but a whole plate of metal was gone. And now, as they looked, a figure came creeping through holding a torch. Quick, whispered Brave. Jump! And West hung dangling until Colette grasped him by the collar, and he was dragged out. Then her nerves gave way, and she wept hysterically. But West threw his arm around her and led her across the gardens into the next street, where Braith, after replacing the manhole cover and piling some stone slabs from the wall over it, rejoined them. It was almost dark. They hurried through the street, now only lit by burning buildings or the swift glare of the shells. They gave wide berth to the fires, but at a distance saw the flitting forms of pillagers among the debris. Sometimes they passed a female fury, crazed with drink, shrieking anathemas upon the world, or some slouching lout whose blackened face and hands betrayed his share in the work of destruction. At last they reached the Seine and passed the bridge, and then Brace said, I gotta go back. I'm not sure of what happened to Sylvia and Jack. As he spoke, he made his way for a crowd which came trampling across the bridge and along the river wall by the Dorsey barracks. In the midst of it, West caught the measured tread of a platoon. A lantern passed, a file of bayonets, then another lantern which glimmered on a deathly face behind, and Colette gasped, Hathman! And he was gone. They peered fearfully across the embankment, holding their breath. There was a shuffle of feet on the quay, and the gate of the barracks slammed. A lantern shone for a moment at the postern. The crowd pressed to the grill, then came the clank of the volley from the stone parade. One by one, the petroleum torches flared up along the embankment, and now the whole square was in motion. Down the Champs-Élysées and across the Place de la Concorde straggled the fragments of the battle, a company here and a mob there. They poured in from every street, followed by women and children, and a great murmur, born of the icy wind, swept through the Arc de Triomphe and down the dark avenue. Perdus! Perdus! A ragged end of a battalion was pressing past, the specter of annihilation. West groaned. Then a figure sprang from the shadowy ranks and called West's name. And when he saw it was Trent, he cried out. Trent seized him white with terror. Sylvia. West stared speechless, but Colette moaned. Oh, Sylvia, Sylvia, and they are shelling the quarter. Trent, shouted Brave, but he was gone, and they could not overtake him. The bombardment ceased as Trent crossed the boulevard Saint-Germain, but the entrance to the Rue de Seine was blocked by a heap of smoking bricks. Everywhere the shell had torn great holes in the pavement. The café was a wreck of splinters and glass. The bookstore tottered, ripped from roof to basement, and the little bakery, long since closed, bulged outward above a mass of slate and tin. He climbed over the steaming bricks and hurried into the Rue de Tournon. On the corner, a fire blazed, lighting up his own street, and on the wall bank, beneath a shattered gas lamp, a child was writing with a bit of cinder. Here fell the first shell. The letters stared him in the face. The rat killer finished and stepped back to view his work, but catching sight of Trent's bayonet, screamed and fled. 
and as Trent staggered across the shattered streets, from holes and crannies in the ruins, fierce women fled from their work of pillage, cursing him. At first he could not find his house, for the tears blinded him, but he felt along the wall and reached the door. A lantern burned in the concierge's lounge, and the old man lay dead beside it. Faint with fright, he leaned a moment on his rifle, then snatching the lantern sprang up the stairs. He tried to call, but his tongue hardly moved. On the second floor he saw plaster on the stairway, and on the third the floor was torn, and the concierge lay in a pool of blood across the landing. The next floor was theirs. The door hung from its hinges. The walls gaped. He crept in and sank down by the bed, and there two arms were flung around his neck, and a tear-stained face sought his own. Sylvia! Oh, Jack! 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 From the tumbled pillow beside them, a child wailed. They brought it. It is mine. She sobbed. Ours, he whispered with his arms around both of them. Then from the stairs below came Brace's anxious voice. Trent, is everything okay up there? The End, The Street of the First Shell